Hey, before we get started, I want to talk to you a little bit about our theme for this quarter, growing and protecting your portfolio. We're excited about various topics centered around this, but it really comes down to three concepts that will help you grow and protect your portfolio. You can find a PDF on our website about this. Go to wiserinvestor.com, scroll down to the bottom, enter your email address, and you'll get the PDF titled Three Ways to Grow and Protect Your Portfolio. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wiser Retirement Podcast, where we cover financial topics such as retirement planning, tax planning, portfolio management, insurance, and estate planning, so you too can have a wiser retirement. I'm your host, Casey Smith, guiding you to financial success, or my co-hosts, Brad Lyons and Matthews Barnett. Hey, guys. Hi, Casey. How's it going? Great. I'm excited about this new format for this year, a uh, little different name change in the podcast, uh, but it's still us. We're still here. We just uh, are refocusing a little bit. Uh, on what we cover. Having a wiser retirement, I think, is a benefit to all of the listeners out there who can use us as a uh, resource for ideas for investing and for financial planning and estate planning and tax planning. So this is a great format. I'm looking forward to it every week. So the theme this quarter is uh, ways to grow and protect your portfolio. And I really think that there's three core guiding principles that we use here in financial planning and then and obviously how we build uh, investments. And I, I'm excited about this quarter. We have some, some great topics that we've already started uh, planning out and researching how we want to present it. Uh, and I think that uh, all this is going to dance around the theme of growing and protecting portfolios. Well, these three things that we're going to talk about are things that every investor can can use right away. They can implement a lot of these ideas on their own or through their financial advisor that they're working with. Let's start with number one. So think about cost and what that does to a portfolio over time. There's different types of cost, right? So you have the cost of financial advice, but then you also have the cost of products. And I think what's been so confusing in our industry is it all gets wrapped up together. Some firms are like, you get the advice for free, uh, and then the, the products pay us. And then, then there's another side of the industry, more like us, where, hey, our advice costs this, and then this is what the product costs. And so in our world, we keep that cost really low. I mean, I think what our average expense ratio now is seven basis points. Seven or? basis points, I think, for our portfolios, which is incredibly low, which means that all the return in the portfolio is being you know, imputed back to the investor themselves. So It's 0.07% for everybody listening. Yes. I was just <laughs> thinking. The jargon. As I, as I said, basis point, I was yeah. just thinking about that. I remember sitting in college going, I uh, had a guest speaker. You know, it's like a sophomore or something, and the guy could talk about basis points. I'm like, what is a basis point? Well, what's interesting about what you talked you talked about the uh, the product level fees. You know, the the product manufacturers in the financial services industry have become so good at embedding the fees inside the product, and then burying them so deep in the description of the product that I think a lot of investors, if not most investors, really have no idea how much they're paying for investments that they make quite often. Yeah, they, we, they know about the initial amount that they put in, and that becomes kind of their benchmark for whether or not they're making money or losing money in valuation based upon that initial amount that they put in, and then completely disregarding the ongoing fees that may be occurring, the transaction costs that occurred at, at one time. So 
you know, it's 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 a topic that most people, I think, as investors, really haven't given a whole lot of time and thought to. So I think by listening to this podcast and hearing about it, I think it's going to be eye-opening for several people. You know, it's um, it's so different in our world being fee only and fiduciary versus um, the, the other world that they think that's normal, meaning even the advisors. And, and I guess it kind of comes down to, I, I feel like most people are not natural leaders. Most people are followers. And so they sit in a conference room or, or a study room and, and they hear all these different product presenters, the wholesalers come in and say, Oh, if you do this, then it's, then the, this is the best way to do it. I see this in whole life sales a lot. They actually believe that whole life is an investment policy or an investment <laughs> and it's, it's not an investment or it's a really bad investment if it is an <laughs> investment, but it, you know, they, so they're selling whole life. Um, I remember I started off my career in this side of the business in 2000 and I remember uh, a guy going, Hey, you know, you can put X amount of dollars in this whole life policy. And then in, if you want to buy a car in 10 years, you can just pull that money out and borrow it from yourself instead of borrowing from the dealership. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just going, what, what? Is there a solution to buying a car? Is there a solution to college? Is there a solution uh, to everything except for death, right? <laughs> no one, no whole, whole life person that I was working with at the time ever actually talked about death. They just talked about using it for retirement solely. You didn't even need investments. It was crazy. Another example, um, we, we had a person recently uh, come and visit with us here who uh, is with a you know well-known company that makes sense of investing. Uh, we can connect the dots there. He didn't realize that every time he put money into his account that he was being charged 4.25% commission, right? And these are called A shares. So you have a mutual fund that ends with an A. Typically, you're paying that fee up front. And that's a huge drag on investments. If you think about that, man, you just lost 4.25% and you haven't gotten started yet. And, and the whole theme is, yeah, but then it's cheaper. The, the A portion is cheaper going forward, right? So you'd have to hold it a really long time to hit that break even. And nothing is going to compare to a low cost index fund. Well, before managed money accounts, that's all there were, were mutual funds. So it was kind of industry standard for these commission companies to charge you 5 to 7% front load charge. And then, you, like you said, you hold it long term, it might work out. But uh, the advisor got a commission and then, um, you know, you were invested, but you're buying multiple mutual funds uh, across uh, your portfolio. So that was kind of the industry standard at one point, but, but not so much anymore. Although you do see these commission-based broker-dealers still doing it. Yeah. And well, some of them give you choices, I believe. And that's even more confusing because to the client, because they don't know what to choose. They don't know what type of account to choose. I mean, there's a guy down the street that's, that's, uh, in this business. Uh, I say that loosely, uh, who tells if you more, you pay me, the more I can make for you. It doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you think about it, we have here in our, in our download online, uh, if you had a 60, a 60, 40 portfolio, 60 stock, 40 bonds. If you look over the last, um, the last decade, it didn't make this up. Math is kind of funny sometimes. Uh, but over the last 10 years, a 60, 40 allocation, you made a hundred percent rate of return. But if you add a 2% fee to that, that return drops to 63%. That's a huge drag on a portfolio. Right. So it's that, that ongoing fee that is being deducted 
on a daily, weekly, monthly, ongoing basis that the investor really doesn't see that is the one that is so detrimental to our portfolios because it's a blind fee, if you will. Right. The investor doesn't see it, so they don't know it's happening. It doesn't come out of their pocketbook in the same way that it, you know you, when you go to the grocery store and you buy something. So it's a whole different concept of paying for the service of having the money in, invested to this manufacturing company, if you will, that we utilize that term for you know, product manufacturers in the financial services business. And this is the fee that, that it really needs to be reviewed by a professional in order to make the determination if it's appropriate or not. So one thing when you hire a financial advisor like a, who is a fiduciary, what you're really doing is you're outsourcing or offloading the responsibility of doing due diligence on all these different investments. And what the professional advisor does is reviews the fee structure on all this and then compares them product to product, apples to apples. And if all things are else are equal, choose the one with the lower fee. And that's really what the job of the fiduciary is, is to find that product that is the most appropriate at the lowest cost for the investor. So this is where, you know, the, the advisor earns their fee by choosing low cost investment fees that go on forever in your portfolio, presumably to get the most return. We, we mentioned the front load mutual fund, but you see this a lot with the, the advisor now is charging a, a management fee for managing the portfolio. Let's say it's 1%. But on top of that, they have uh, mutual funds that aren't front loaded, but are lower costs, but they still might be half a percent to a percent expense ratio. And that's what you're referring to, to where that 1% portfolio then can become up to 2% uh, based on the expense ratio of the funds selected. Uh, and you not really realize it because you only think that you're paying the, the advisor, the, the management fee. And that's why uh, it goes back to our point of we're trying to keep the, the portfolio costs as low as possible uh, by using exchange traded funds or ETFs. Now, I, I think it, the counter to this is a lot of times they'll say, well, I picked this fund it does have a higher fee, but has better performance. I've been doing this for 21 years and, and quite honestly, I've seen the better performance when it fails, it fails really bad. <laughs> and so I, it, it just over, over time, it, it could be 20 years. It could be 10. Usually it's like five year cycles. The low cost index funds just to, in my mind or on paper, the data shows they're the ones that are hard to beat. If you go 20 plus years, S&P has shown us that you have a 99% chance of not beating the S&P 500 if you're in anything other than the S&P 500. So th those are things we have to take into account is, is this really the performance that they say it is? Will it be this way for, for a long time? It's, it's just hard to tell. But the bottom line is um, uh, that is correct. 1% um, uh, advisor fee is fairly standard in our business. But when you tack on, uh, at some firms, another 1.15% for some of these, what, Lord Abbott and uh, legacy funds, right? Right. And we see coming in, when clients transfer their brokerage accounts to us, their IRAs to us, we see that from brokerage houses, we see these fees, these funds Even some on of the a American daily basis. funds can be pretty high, too. Yeah. Several of these fund families have made a lot of money off client, you know, their investors you know, by charging these embedded fees that you just don't see. You just don't. I'll have to go back and look at this on ETF.com, but I believe over the last 10 years, we've had consistent outflows from mutual funds to ETFs. Now, mutual funds are still the largest uh, holder of assets right now, partially because of 401k plans. They're 
mostly in 401k plans. Uh, but people still don't know about them though. We still get clients all the time that have <laughs> portfolios and mutual funds at broker dealers or they picked themselves and kind of ask, well, what is an ETF? How long has it been around? Cause, um, you know, even though it's been 20 plus years that they've been around, they're still, uh, not as popular, uh, as, as mutual funds that you see on TV. Well, the client asking that, I get that. What surprises me and it's been, you know, this is pre COVID Brad, you and I were down at the, uh, the ETF conference down in Florida and I'm always shocked about how many people are in the ETF 101 class. Like, this is what an ETF like, like is. this is new. Advisors? <laughs> yes. 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 Financial advisors. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that class should be empty. That's a warm-up for the speaker. That's crazy. I, I, don't, I don't understand that at all. Man, we've been all ETF portfolios since 2004. And at the time, that was a little leading edge, I guess. But, um, yeah, and then... The number of people uh, that think the ETFs are just derivatives, meaning that you don't actually own anything, um, that's big number too. You, <laughs> I don't understand it. It's like, like, where do you guys get your CE credits from? Because it must be whole life sales. <laughs> <laughs> because this is not learning about new, relatively new products. I, I would say ETFs are no longer new. Like the ETF people are probably that are experts now, like us, we're moving on to other things. Um, maybe it's crypto, maybe it's, <laughs> maybe it's keeping up with, uh, what's in the, the bill, uh, or not in the bill and in, in house, uh, you know, inner bill name here. But, um, anyway, okay. So keeping costs low, that's very important. Right. Uh, and, and we have a podcast uh, coming up now. Uh, I guess our next podcast, we're going to dive into that a little deeper. Well, you know, and, and the cost, and I'll just say one last thing perhaps, is that it reverberates through the rest of your investment portfolio. If you can manage that cost, you know, the time in the portfolio, the diversification of the portfolio, it all benefits from keeping costs low. So that's yep. why we put it first. Well, and, and then also add too that we have benchmarks. We don't just come up with portfolios and go, okay, hopefully this, this works out well. We have benchmarks that were based on risk that we know that a certain portfolios should be performing to. Those benchmarks don't have any fees. That's right. They're just raw indexes. So anytime, even an even a index fund, we have to figure out ways, how do we make up for this uh, six or seven basis point costs, right? Right. And so that, that's, that's important. Um, and I think it's I think it's just an area that that individual investors that are using managed accounts from advisors don't understand, and the advisors don't want to talk about it. And I'm I'm here to talk about it. I'm you know yep. so we'll do that yep. uh, next episode. Uh, maintain diversified portfolio. I think this one is the hardest one to explain. So what is what is diverse portfolio diversification? It's not all your money in Tesla. It's not all your money in Google. It's not having all your money in, in, in Amazon right? crypto. or crypto. Yeah, definitely not all your money in crypto. Um, <laughs> yeah, tell that college student that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Meme stocks and crypto or the diversified portfolio. <laughs> not to go down this rabbit hole because we have crypto. We have crypto uh, podcast with, with Robert. So we, we don't want to we don't we want to step on his toes. But I literally was um, at the hospital with my mom unfortunately yesterday and the nurse asked what I did and I, of course I told her I was a financial advisor here in town and she said um oh my son is uh really likes finance he's he's into all the cryptos yeah <laughs> <laughs> I just I just smiled and nodded thinking man this is uh 
this is taking over taking over the world but this is her idea of finance now was crypto so there's a there's a <laughs> they made money at some point so <laughs> right. I guess it, it yeah. counts as finance yeah that's true so uh maintaining diversification so brad once you kind of walk us through you know different asset classes and risk because i think that's the basis to, to diversification yeah the basis to diversification is you know it's it's the oldest saying in the book and we heard this from our grandmothers you know don't put all your eggs in one basket right i mean this is this idea of diversifying has been around for a very 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 long time and the ways to utilize and, and to distinguish and the characteristics of a diversified portfolio are to recognize that different investments behave differently during the same economic event and that's the key that the economic event occurs but all the different investments in your portfolio you want them to behave differently so the idea behind this is to find investments that are non-correlated to one another large company stocks small company stocks international company stocks emerging market company stocks technology stocks versus real estate stocks bonds versus stocks for example and the idea is is determining an expected return and variation of that return in each asset class so large company stocks have an expected return of x with a variation between one and ten for example in this here and we build portfolios that are designed so that when one asset class such as large cap may be going up another asset class like bonds quite often have an inverse relationship to stocks may not be going up it doesn't mean up and down it just means not up necessarily at the same rate and the same pace so what we're trying to do then is that in another economic cycle the bonds may be doing well and the large cap stocks in this example may not be doing as well so they play off one another it's not as if we're always trying to find the best performing asset class and put all their money into it what we want to do is in a diversified portfolio is to be sure that we're always invested in the best performing asset class through diversification okay does that make sense yeah um i like to say it is we only invest in long-term healthy asset classes so um, that's large mid small the indexes um and then aggregate you know the aggregate bond which is what in, is in most uh, 401k plans so just because one's underperforming doesn't mean it's bad that just means that's your opportunity to pick up more shares per dollar. Right. If we're always buying what's performing very well, then we're always buying less shares per dollar. But we all know that these different asset classes over the long term are very healthy and they're going to make money. Now, there are time periods when everything doesn't seem very diversified when it's all falling. We experienced that for a few weeks in COVID where bonds and stocks were falling during the great financial crisis. Uh, it was a actually a, a fixed income crisis, right? Uh, which bled into the stock market, but the stock market makes the news. But bonds seized up from trading during the financial crisis. So everything correlated to one and fell at one time. Now, once intervention came in from the Fed, the government, et cetera, then those quickly spread where bonds were going up in value, stocks were continuing to fall in value. Same for the COVID crisis. So 
the, the important thing is, is that, you know, the, on the stock side, um, you have voting rights and then on, you know, in the return, you're hoping for company to gain money on the bond side. You just want them to pay their debt, right? So the bonds historically, if you want to hedge a portfolio, protect a portfolio, you want to use bonds because typically they're going to move opposite of what the stock market is in normal, in normal environments. We just happen to live in a time period where we've had at least two not so normal environments, right? Uh, and so things performed a little bit differently, but gold, silver, that is an asset, asset class, uh, alternatives is what we would call those. And, and maybe they have a place in a portfolio, but it's not, it's not a place that's probably bigger than five or 10% of a portfolio. You can look at that as diversification, but it's certainly not the place where you'd put all your money. So if you're listening, you're younger, you have a, a 401k plan that you're saving for your retirement into. What we see a lot of times is there might be three large cap fund options inside the portfolio. And what people will do is pick all three large caps because those have been some of the best performing asset classes over the last 10 years. And so when you look at that performance chart, you're going, oh, I'm just going to pick these three funds because they've been doing great. You basically just pick the exact same stocks in three different portfolios because one's probably a growth fund. One's probably the S&P 500. Another one could be a value, although the, it's been underperforming. So it could just be another type of growth fund or blue chip or something like that. You want to avoid that. You want to be able to pick maybe large, uh, small, and then international and then bonds. That's really your core asset classes. Some 401k plans will offer a real estate fund. Maybe you use that 5%, 10% of the portfolio. That's fine. But what you don't want to do is put everything in one place. If you're going to do that, you might as well just pick the target date fund. That's the kind of the basic for every single portfolio. So maintaining diversification simply means that we're not betting everything on one asset class. We've we spread our money out amongst different asset classes because we know that small cap stocks can outperform large cap stocks, but they're also more volatile. So we add a little bit. We know emerging markets in the foreign category are very volatile, but can perform outperform U.S. stocks um, sometimes dramatically by double digits. But we also know they can lose double digits. So we put a small percentage down there where usually the core of the portfolio is going to be in the S&P 500, uh, which historically has done, has done very well for all portfolios. Um, and if the S&P is struggling, typically you'll see other things struggling as well. Uh, and then, and then we manage risk by using bonds, not cash, because you, you want the ability to be able to move up when the stock market is coming down and cash is not going to do that for you. Uh, so I, I think that explains diversification fairly well. well. We'll dive more into that over over the quarter. The next one uh, and our final point here is, is, is focusing long-term. And I think this is used very easily is a, hey, focus long-term, you know. Oh my gosh, Mr. Advisor, the, the clients, uh, the market's crashing. What do I do? And, and, and it's, oh, focus long-term. That's the answer, it's, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, but I don't know if we dive into that enough. What does that really mean to focus long-term? I've had clients tell me, I don't have long-term. I'm 80 years old. <laughs> right? <laughs> so so we have, you have to dive into what does that mean a little bit. And we're, we're going to cover that throughout the quarter. But for just for today, let's think about um, the S&P 500. So over the last 10 years, the S&P is up 347%. 
that uh, and then the prior decade, it was up forty three percent. And if we go back three decades, it returned two hundred and thirty two percent. So basically, altogether, that's over a. If you compound that from the beginning, it's a two thousand plus percent rate of return over the last thirty years. So basically, ten thousand dollars would now be worth two hundred fourteen thousand dollars. That's a big rate of return for being very patient, being a very patient investor, not selling because, oh, stocks are doing bad. I got to move the bonds. That's just the stock side of your portfolio. That's the rate of return you should have expected over a 30-year time time span. But you think about all the things that happened during the last 30 years, right? We had a subprime mortgage crisis. We had September 11th. We had a pandemic yeah we had uh, this in not, the 90s this is, we had rising interest rates which you know kind of stopped the market for a while i mean there were these huge economic events that have occurred over time and within that you still had these tremendous gains in stocks over the whole period 2001 to 2011 that was a tough decade that was a tough decade. Well, still referred to as the, the lost decade, I believe. It yeah, is, because yeah. I think if you do it from, from 2000 to 2010, you actually had a flat rate of return. Yeah. Uh, but still, 43% from 01 to 2011, that seems like a miracle when you, if you read the news headlines during that time period. That's the importance of, of sticking to a strategy and understanding the strategy is going to work. Um, it, it's very often when politics gets involved in portfolios, people say, I want to... Biden proof my portfolio or before that I was like, I want to Trump proof my portfolio. And it's like, well, in indexing, you own 6,700 stocks and 12,000 bonds. It doesn't really matter. Right. As long as you believe that capitalism works, that people can create businesses, grow businesses, list them on an exchange, people buy it. As long as you can believe that can keep happening, then I'm not saying politics doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter as much to your portfolio. You know, these, these time periods, you know, I don't want people to get, you know, disillusioned thing. Oh, 30 years. I mean, that's, um, I'm never going to hold an investment for 30 years or I'm never going to plan for that long. But when we do planning for people in the retirement, look what we're planning for. We're planning for a 30 year period from age 65 to at least age 95. And then during your accumulation years, graduate from college, get a job, say you're 25, if you're going to work to age 65 and you contribute to a 401k plan, that's a 40-year span. So these time frames that we're discussing of 30, 40 years are not unrealistic in any, either at the beginning of your you know, uh, accumulation phase or at the beginning of your decumulation phase. Yeah. Both are realistic time frames. Just what you were invested in would be a little different. We're, we're just using the S P 500 as a benchmark to show the overall market. But obviously, like you mentioned, because of those high gains, there were some, some risk involved. So most people, uh, specifically in closer retirement can't stomach those big ups and downs. And that's why you would have what we discussed previously, the diversified portfolio. So you wouldn't fully participate in all these ups and downs, but you would be fully invested in the stock market, which like we said, in the, in the long term, uh, will, should be up. Yeah. Right. It's always interesting to look out because every time there's a crisis, people say, Oh, it's different this time. Oh, it's different this time. And you know, fear is what unfortunately motivates most people. They have a fear of, of market collapse. And so they, they go and dig a hole in their backyard and put gold in there. They have a fear of running out of money. So they don't invest all their money. They keep a lot in cash. But that's, you know, 
math is the best solution to all this. Is let's start. Let's do the math. And the, correct, you know, it's easy for us to say this because I know um, every single client here has a plan. And we already and we've already planned for that seventeen to twenty percent market drop, right? So we we know that this is going to work just fine. We we know that they have enough insurance. We know that they have estate planning done, right? Or they're on our list <laughs> if, if they don't. Um, but for, for everybody out there that doesn't have an advisor that's on top of all aspects of retirement, you just have to think about, you know, are you going to cash your chips in when the market's down and you're never going to get a rebound ever if you sell everything? I met a lot of people uh, with a half million dollars looking for an advisor in 2010, that used to have a million dollars two years prior, right? So unfortunately, that's just the greatest way to destroy wealth is is focusing short term and not and not looking at okay, well yeah, it's down. I'm going to let my dividends reinvest into much cheaper prices. And when those come back, man, I'm going to come back pretty quick or add more cash if if that's an opportunity. You know, I think that since you and I and, and Matthews, we've all been in this career long enough now that we've seen these, quote, crises. If you turn that around in your perspective, a crisis can also be considered an opportunity. And I think it actually, and, and, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in the in the Chinese language, crisis and opportunity is the same word. Didn't know that. Is that kind of interesting? That, so it's all in your matter of your perspective. If we're talking about a market crisis, if you're on the other side of that and your perspective can, can change a little bit, you can look at it as an opportunity. Wasn't the subprime crisis an opportunity to invest money? Huge. Wasn't the uh, recent COVID sell-off you know, an opportunity to invest money with the way the market came back? It just doesn't feel like an no, opportunity in the middle of it. In the middle of it, it's, it's the world's scary. Yeah. yeah, in the middle of it, it's very scary. I, I remember... Um, a gentleman uh, we did some planning for during the crisis, and he wanted to retire. And the money that he was, he needed money to invest, or he had money to invest, but I also wanted to get his mortgage paid off because, you know, we like seeing our retirees live debt free. And uh, I couldn't make it happen. So, like, you're just going to carry the mortgage through retirement. Well, his money transferred in, and we invested 50% of it uh, as we agreed at it was literally at the bottom. It was in the March of 2009. And within six months, we got that house paid off because of the rate of return coming up out of that crisis. And I always think back on that. I was like, man, why didn't we just put a hundred percent in? But then at the time I'm like, well, man, that was some scary stuff going on. <laughs> we had just witnessed what Dow 6,500 or something like that. So, you know, that in the middle of it, it's always a little bit different than what it looks like uh, doing the Monday morning quarterback. But, you know, I kept a journal during that time, and we used that during um, during the COVID crash. Uh, I kind of referenced it, and it's not detailed notes necessarily, It's but it, it was kind of weird. It's like, you know, note to self in the future, and here I am in the future reading it. Yep. And we did. We did take advantage of the COVID sell-off, but it also rebounded much faster, so we weren't really tested. Imagine if we did rebalances and just kept falling by another 30%. You know, that, that would be... Um, That'd be different. But at the same time, the people who make big decisions in the government, they were around during the financial crisis too. So they were able to react a lot faster. During the financial crisis, it was an experiment. 
They'd never had to deal with this before. Well, nobody has a crystal ball, but uh, people who had been through both, they have experience. That's where we really earned our value, I think. Is and and our gray experience. hairs or hair loss. <laughs> had to get that in. Some of us more than others. So, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Matthew still has his. It's, it's getting graying, getting there. Uh, All right. Well, uh, let's put a cap on this one and uh, look forward to the next conversation, guys. Great. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to a Wiser Retirement Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. That way you don't miss any new episodes. We would also appreciate if you could leave a rating and review. If you have any questions about anything that was discussed today, head to wiserinvestor.com and reach out. We would love to hear from you. This episode was produced and edited by Lilton Moore. Wiser Wealth Management Incorporated is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.